0: Hello and welcome to The Two View, the cutting edge educational and interactive show for PAs and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine and urgent care. I'm nurse practitioner Martha Roberts and I'm here with a very good friend for a very special podcast. Hello to my co-host Michael Sharma.
1: Hello Martha it's great to be back with you again Um, and hello to you listener. Quick shout out to you if you're joining us for the first time, especially if we met at the uh, Texas Academy of PAs conference last week. I got to deliver some talks, meet some fellow PAs from Texas and around the country, and both were equally a great honor. Welcome to the podcast.
0: This is going to be a very sad and formal announcement. As some of you may know, we lost a Titan in emergency medicine recently. This person was my father, James Roberts.
1: Dr. Roberts, or Jim, as he went by for most people, may have been the most frequent guest on the two View Listener, you would have heard him as recently as our July episode, episode 18. It's a big blow to the two View community. Uh, personally, I lost my father a few years ago, and so I, I can appreciate personally what you're going through right now, Martha, and we're also very sorry for your loss.
0: Thank you, Mike. You have been extremely helpful for the last couple of months, and I... I put off doing this podcast with you. As you know, I wasn't just being lazy. It's been, it's been really hard to kind of jump back in the saddle. And I really do appreciate you and Rick covering last month. I missed a, a couple of boot camps and I'm, I'm happy to be back. Um, I'm able to sort of move a little bit forward, not necessarily move on. Um, but I'd like to say a few words about Jim, if that's okay, Mike.
1: Yeah, fire away, Martha.
0: And then after that, I'd really like to read from two of his most popular and influential pieces of writing from emergency medicine news, his in-focus column, where he was the chairman of the magazine for almost 40 years. Um, Jim and I worked very closely together on a blog for almost a decade called The Procedural Pause, and all the videos of emergency medicine procedures, we tried to focus as many as we could and get them on there over the years. They're all still there for you to watch and read if you want to. So thank you again, everyone, for tuning in for this particular special episode of The Two View. Jim Roberts, he was definitely one of a kind and I know touched the hearts and minds of many of you. As many of you know, Jim was one of the first ER and toxicology doctors in the country and was an original faculty member for CCME. He helped define the specialty with his candor, creativity, zest, and passion for the patient, and most importantly, his caring and positive attitude. A trailblazer, medical expert, insightful toxicologist, and doctor with a soothing bedside manner and cracked some really good jokes once in a while. Over his 50 years in healthcare, Jim paved the way for the first batch of residents, He wrote and published numerous studies, articles, books, review guides, and pamphlets that people are still using, in fact, might be using right now as I speak. And he wrote board review lectures, gave thoughtful live talks, joined podcasts, and professional meetings. He professed his love for emergency medicine. He was a well-spoken professor and lecturer and traveled the world spreading his teachings. Like a domino effect, patients and healthcare workers have benefited directly from his work. A few other accolades from a list of many- Jim was the lead editor, as I mentioned, for Emergency Medicine News. He wrote his column, I'd like to say, uh, once every month, but he spent hours, sometimes days, writing those columns. In his early years, I sat under his desk drawing on paper anatomical pictures of hearts and brains, hoping that his knowledge would fall down upon me under his feet. He typed away on his typewriter and mumbled words I didn't know at the time, but they were interesting and addicting. I was inspired every day by Jim. I was so lucky. I saw a part of emergency medicine that no one else got to see, and I learned things I am forever grateful for. I grew up watching him lecture for our courses in incredible places all over the country with my other dad, Rick Bucata, who has known me since I've been a fetus. (laughs) And I sat in awe watching my other hero, Diane Birnbauer, grace the stage, having drinks and laughs in the Keys, Vegas Vale with Greg Henry, Ken Milne, Jerry Hoffman, Mel Herbert, Amal Matu, so many of you I am privileged to know. And now in my 40 years of life, I get to call all of you, my dearest friends, my colleagues, and my extended family. Jim just wasn't a a teacher and a doctor. He was my best friend and my mentor. We worked together on multiple projects and some of the best days of my life were lecturing with him on stage. We are now in the eighth edition of his book, Robertson Hedges, Clinical Procedures in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. And with a brilliant team of editors, we hope to finish the book for him. I can remember some of the shifts that he took all the photos that are still in the book today. Jim was also a great patient because he let me suture on him, inject him, and relocate a few of his bones. Many of our procedural videos featured a few of his ailments, which he kindly shared with our community, showing the real side of the patient, and he so eloquently taught while having the procedure done to him. Let's just say that I did excuse myself one time, though, when he needed a catheter after surgery. I think that's when I had a hard stop. I have so many hours of videos and procedures that we worked on. But when we weren't working on work or a podcast or a talk or a publication, we would do what we called work for fun. I know, sounds boring to some, but we got a thrill out of mastering techniques and tricks of the trade. Like many of you, we wanted to be better, better at our craft, better at everything we did. And we always loved learning. Some nights, Jim and I would sit mapping out the clotting cascade, playing with ABG numbers, reviewing anatomy, just talking about procedures we wanted to tackle next. We wanted to alert anyone and everyone about the best way, the safest way, and the most respectful way to perform these tasks on our patients. Ian was a calling and a vocation to us, and we had a very special bond, traveling, teaching, learning, and exploring. I was Jim's first scribe when I was 14, and he used to throw a white coat on me so I could go into the rooms and take histories. In the past few years, I'd call him after a shift, telling him about something I'd seen, and he'd remind me not to forget the important stuff. We reviewed the zebras of medicine, and he reminded me to give that patient a call back the next day just to see how they were doing. But Jim was also a dad, a brother, an uncle, a husband, a grandfather, and a friend. He was witty, modest, kind, and he had a really wacky sense of humor. He was an incredible fisherman, great storyteller, and adventurer, and we camped and discovered fun things to do. We spent time with family. We made memories. We cooked together, shared drinks, stories about life, love, and our sadness, both in our personal lives and about the things that we saw in the ER. I wish that I had time to share with you all of those stories. We faced challenges together. He was my rock and he was my phone a friend. I would be nothing and no one without my father, not just in the world of EM, but in my personal life. I'm not really sure what I'm going to do without him now. But hopefully I can lean on some of you as our challenges grow in healthcare. And maybe I can run a cool case by some of you now and again. As Jim would say, the keys to life and medicine are exactly the same. Always be kind and considerate. Laugh when appropriate. Be gentle and humble. Be on time and don't ruffle too many feathers. Always check a glucose, couldn't hurt. Know where a crash cart is or some emergency device. Take time to talk to your loved ones, your patients. Stay level-headed, never go to bed angry, and be grateful that you have a close friend or family member you can always call in the time of need. We need each other in this life. Jim was a great many things. But most importantly, Jim was fun-loving. He loved what he did, and he was good at it. He was an intelligent man who knew a lot about life a lot about emergency medicine and a lot about people. Jim was remarkable and we're all going to miss him.
1: Martha, thanks. It was a real privilege for us to hear you speak from the heart about a man you knew so well. Uh, It's been said before, you know, never meet your heroes because they don't usually live up to your expectations. And that's happened to me before in other avenues. Um, Jim was a hero to so many, and I have no doubt to the many that he met that saw him as a hero, like how I saw him, that he exceeded his expectations like he did for me. A few weeks ago, um, you mentioned Amul Matu shared a talk on his own podcast from Jim as a tribute. It was a talk that Jim gave in 1995. And uh, Dr. Mattu says he still listens to it on audio cassette. Uh, Google that, listener, if you're not familiar with what an audio cassette is. But every couple of years, uh, he would listen to this talk. And uh, can you believe it? Uh, You know, uh, you know, think about if you told Jim that night, like in 1995, Jim, people are going to listen to this talk, this exact talk. People will listen to it 30 years later. And uh, I can't imagine he would have believed you, you know. When you told me that your dad had passed away and then later I was listening to this talk of his a few days later and admiring that, yep, it was like still funny and educational and relevant in 2022. And I was just so sad. I had this image in my mind of this light going out in the house of emergency medicine. Um, But then I realized that the light had not gone out. It had been spread to thousands upon thousands of people who all now carried this light with them. And if anything, the light was now even brighter, and it continues to spread to this day. There will be a link in the show notes to that talk of Jim's, just like you do for everything else on this show. The show notes can be found at twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number, twoview.fireside.fm. Like you said, Martha, we're now going to read from two columns that Jim wrote for EM News. I read them even before you know, Jim got sick over the years and thought they were wonderful. Uh, The one column is a real time capsule of where our specialty has come from. And the second column is a great guide on what comes next if you've chosen to join this specialty of emergency medicine. It is a real honor to read with you these words from Dr. Jim Roberts.
0: And a side note, if you're going to be at ASEP this year in San Francisco, where I will be hanging out with some good old friends and going to the parties and listening to some great talks, you can head on over to the Hilton Franciscan slash uh, AB room. That's how it's written on it at 5 p.m. on Sunday, October 2nd for a memorial and a gathering. There'll be food and drinks and a great slideshow and a few surprises and a couple a couple uh, nice guests saying some kind words about Jim. So. We'd love to see you. That's Sunday, October 2nd at the Hilton at the Franciscan AB at 5 p.m. So Mike, I'm going to start with this first column that actually um, had been published a time or two in Emergency Medicine News and some other venues as well, uh, but was finally updated just just about a month or two before Jim got sick. And it was um, really it was, I think it got published possibly um, a this week. This says before.
1: June. Yeah, so it's yeah. like so recently.
0: Yeah, it, and it's not like Jim knew he he was dying or he was sick. It was actually um, quite shocking. He he died from a massive stroke. Um, it was unexpected, and he had been on the podcast just that month before, so working and, and doing his normal thing. So th- the fact that this was there, I'm glad that it got in there because <laughs> – it really says a lot about his, his time in emergency medicine. This is called Looking Back on a Career in Emergency Medicine. I retired from full-time clinical emergency medicine not long ago, and it made me think about what an amazing specialty it is and how it has evolved over 50-some years. Emergency medicine didn't really exist when I was an intern trying to decide my future. I was something, it was something that you did while waiting for your real career to begin. The ER, it wasn't called the ED then, was staffed by interns and a few begrudging attendings from other fields who viewed it as punishment that had to be occasionally endured. Odd as it seems now, the most difficult field was handled by the least educated clinicians, and it was crazy to think that I could ever be a lifelong calling for me. I tried to put my career into perspective over the years with my acknowledgement of some of those spectacular clinicians who founded, and developed the specialty, and it was interesting to contemplate my journey through the most amazing specialty in modern-day medicine. Thanks, everyone, for an amazing 45-year career, one that began at a time when I knew every residency-trained emergency physician in the world personally, all five of them. These are notes from my first 25 years in emergency medicine.
1: 1972. I spoke to my medical school advisor today. He said, you want to do what? Work full time in the ER? You got to be nuts. He seemed like a smart guy and was probably right by prognosticating that there's no future in the ER. But it is pretty exciting. Funny thing, though, nobody really knows what they're doing in the ER. Lots of weird stuff. Adrenaline junkies work there. No real help from those consultants who offer us a lot of second guessing and criticism. There's not even board certification in that specialty. Guess I'll go into OBGYN. that will make my mother happy.
0: 1973. I'm an intern at Highland General Hospital in Oakland, California. OBGYN sucks. Those Pitocin drips are the worst. And all you see are women who scream a lot. I can do a month in the ER if I want. I'll give it a try. Maybe I can find my calling there or at least decipher what internal medicine field I might fit in. But I kind of like this ER stuff. I heard about a doc named Bob Daly who does it full time. We'll give him a call and we'll sign up for another month in the ER.
1: 1974. Internship finished. Love Berkeley, but too many Quaaludes. You get them free from the pharmacy and it's legal to grow pot here, but that'll never catch on. We'll miss the Fillmore, hate Ashbury, sporting my ponytail, and all those cool California women and places. But time to think about a real job. Not. Instead, I am going to Turkey. Got a VW bus and drove to India. Did not like Pakistan. Afghanistan did not like us. Maybe it was my ponytail.
0: 1975. Got a job in a local ER. Cool. But I don't know squat. Heard about this pseudo residency at medical college of Pennsylvania in emergency medicine. MCP used to be called women's medical college, but it went bankrupt. Maybe that's where emergency medicine is headed, but I will check it out. They don't even need me to fill out a formal application. Just show up on July 1st. (laughs) This emergency medicine stuff is a lot different from internal medicine. Met a doc named Dave Wagner and this guy, George Schwartz, pretty smart guys. They think full-time ER just might work. Think- I will do that residency. My mother wants to know when I will be a real doctor. She really wants to see my office. I started EM residency in July. Might be a mistake, but we'll give it a try. Best part is that you can wear scrubs to work every day. No tie, gotta love
1: that. A patient stopped breathing. So I intubated him. Just like I saw them doing my anesthesia rotation. It's not that hard. Just put the tube in a little hole with those two white cords at the beginning. The head of anesthesia was furious and complained to Dr. Wagner. She said she would personally testify against me in court if I ever intubated again. That was a job of anesthesia. I should call the nurse anesthetist. Dr. Wagner just laughed and told me to keep up the good work. I've got to be insane to put up with this garbage. Glad I can commiserate with a few other crazies out there. The head of medicine said I was crazy. Why don't you quit this ER nonsense and do a medicine residency? Didn't like that guy. He actually told me that pulmonary edema should be treated only in the MICU. Just call his resident and he would treat the patient the right way. Guess Lasix doesn't work in the ER, only the ICU. I did call the medicine resident, but I knew more than he did. And it took him an hour to call back.
0: Couldn't get the surgery resident to do anything for that guy with the ice pick wound to the chest. He thought the hypotension was vagal. I did a periocardiostasis when he left and got 50 cc's of non clotting blood out of his, and his blood pressure went up. The surgery attending did not know how to respond. What's an ER doc anyway? Never heard of such nonsense. But he took the patient to the OR to repair the hole in the heart. Dr. Wagner just smiled. Went off to this meeting in Washington and met about 50 other docs who also taught this ER thing. Maybe they think it'll catch on. Call themselves the American College of Emergency Physicians met Ron Chrome, John Wangenstein, George Pagroni, Carl Mangold, Harris Graves, Gail Anderson, and Peter Rosen, all smart people. They actually think that they can get board certification. Talking about a real board exam, fat chance, they gotta be nuts.
1: 1976, started going to East Lansing, Michigan of all places for meetings of the American Board of Emergency Medicine. The test being developed actually asked important stuff. Nice idea, but EM will never fly, especially because the surgeons still hate us. Met Joe Wackerly, who started a residency group called EMRA with me. Probably won't go anywhere. After all, only about 30 residents in the entire country, and I I know most of them. We're a weird bunch. 1977. Did some dog studies on endotracheal epinephrine with a guy named Mike Greenberg. It actually works. Surprised nobody ever thought of this before. I knew those cardiologists had no clue about life in the ER, but I doubt if the American Heart Association will ever abide this concept.
0: Started working on this publication called Emergency Medicine News. Met Jaris Hedges, another smart guy. We agreed that no standard textbook helps us in the ER. Those guys just don't get it. Might as well write our own. Maybe concentrate on procedures? Started to read my first EM journal. Can this specialty possibly take off? Worked with Steve Davidson, Brent King, Al Cicchetti, all such smart guys. I need to hit the books to keep up, but no good books out there that actually tell you what to do in an emergency. 1978, went to the Society for Academic Medicine meeting. Not many docs there. Held it at the Holiday Inn. The internists hold their meetings at the Marriott, and all of them wear nice suits, even to work. Nice try, EM guys. Better luck next time. Some of them seem as nuts as I am.
1: 1979. The ABMS actually voted to accept emergency medicine as the newest specialty. Surgeons still hate us. Too bad, guys. Get with the program. Thanks to Ben Munger et al., I am actually intubating all ER patients now. Still get grief with central lines and chest tubes. Head of the anesthesia left, and we finally got succinylcholine in the ER. Moved to University of New Mexico. Same old hassles. Glad Dennis Price, Dan Tanberg, and George Schwartz are there to give moral support. Might hire this guy, Dave Sklar. Try to get a residency, but no way. Guess 12 residencies in the country are enough. Met Tom Mayer, Anne Honward, Harvey Mileson, Shelley Jacobson, John Glosser. They do the same stuff in other parts of the country.
0: 1983, heard about Louis Goldfrank in New York. He is a legend in emergency medicine who had a fellowship in toxicology. Sounds like the same problems emergency medicine had to deal with. think I'll give it a try too. Met Neil Flemenbaum, another smart guy. Had a moonlighting job in New Jersey where I put in a pacemaker on a patient with an acute MI and heart block. And I was asked to leave by the medical staff by an array cardiologist (laughs) who could not be reached to put in the pacemaker. Seems like we should not tolerate waiting for prima donna consultants who do stuff I can easily do myself. Somehow stayed on the medical staff. Same problems from an orthopod when I reduced a dislocated shoulder. Hey, guys, it's really not that hard. And if you don't own the procedures, I mean, I better get cracking on that procedures book.
1: 1985. Finished talks fellowship. Feeling good. Heard that University of Cincinnati has an EM program and needed faculty. Met Richard Levy, Steve Jonan, jairus Hedges again. That guy's potential. Mel Otten, Bill Barson, all a whole lot smarter than I am. And those residents were awesome. Like Mike Spadafidora, Mike spadafora Sorry, Leslie Wolf, John Malner, Scott Sverid, Charles Janovsky, Steve Huff, Brian Zink, Michelle Buros, Brian Gibler, Susan Stone, Sue ginshaw Rashmi Kathari and a bunch more whose names escape me. I think these guys will be famous someday. Was asked to write regularly for emergency medicine news, a way to get something disseminated without waiting six months for a journal to respond. Started a column called In Focus, where I get to pontificate. 1986, EMN had the first article in the literature about this weird immune deficiency syndrome, bad infections, Kaposi sarcoma probably won't ever announce much. I know I'll never see it in the ER.
0: Met Lewis Ling, Brooks Bach, John Gallagher, Joe Clinton, Mike Tomlongvich, Ernest Ruiz, Mike Callahan, Ellen Taliaferro, Dave Tallon, Ken Iserson, Richard Brain, Bob Knopp, Blaine White, Todd Stair, Mark Smith, Bob Hockenberger, Bob Schneider, Dan Danzel and Kathy Delaney while giving the oral board exam. Getting harder to know everybody in EM, growing fast, some of the best medical students applying. These guys are really smart. I hope they don't make me look bad. The SAEM and the ASAP meetings are getting bigger, no longer held at the holiday Inns. EMN at Emergency Medicine News writing about smoking cocaine called it crack. That will never catch on, trust me. 1987, asked to resign by the chair of medicine in Cincinnati because I actually gave antibiotics to a septic patient before the medicine resident saw him. What nerve. (laughs) But they were the correct antibiotics. Still a long way to go. Asked to resign by pulmonary doc because I saw a patient in the ICU with carbon oxide poisoning and took him to another hospital for a hyperbaric oxygen treatment. More residencies opening up, some getting full department status. Got a call from Rick Bucata. Might give a few talks. Something about EM Abstracts, involved with Jerry Hoffman, Greg Henry, Neil Little, Mike Heller, Jim Ducharme, Peter Versilio, Ron Walls, and clearly smarter than I am, all these guys.
1: 1989. Back to Philadelphia. The residency has grown to 36 residents. Can't possibly get bigger. Most of the old problems solved, getting almost impossible for me to do nights anymore. Dr. Wagner is still working more shifts than I am. My textbook on procedures is the second edition. Some great contributors who really know their stuff. Starting my own toxicology fellowship, graduating Dave Cohn, Dave Lee, Suzanne Doyen, Chris King, Sue Farrell. 1995. These residents take intubating, chest tubes, central lines, pacemakers, and conscious sedation for granted. They don't realize how hard we work to get them to this point. Must be getting old. Definitely can't do nights anymore. Metawiz named Billy Malin. Also, Dan Birnbomber, Peter Sokolov, Rita Sadoka, John Marks, Jeff Runge. I hear Johns Hopkins, Harvard, and the University of Pennsylvania, Ivy League schools, are actually starting emergency medicine residencies. Who would have thought that this would ever come to pass? Bob McNamara and Howard Bloomstein started the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. They have to be crazy if they can think they can change ASAP.
0: 1998, the ASAP and SAEM meetings sure are getting bigger. So many smart people, very intimidating research. Where do they find the time and energy? Bob Hoffman sure is smart. EM residency's up to 50. And the applicants actually wear suits for interviews, not like the old days. The residents sure are smart these days, a lot smarter than I was. Anthony Dean and Tom Castellatino think that they can do ultrasound at the bedside. Ed Sloan and Andy Jagoda started the Foundation for Education and Research in Neurological Emergencies, another niche for emergency medicine. The year 2000. Wish I could give a talk like Tim Erickson, or knew as much tox-related music as Leon Gousseau, or work a PDA phone like Rich Hamilton. Do I really have to learn PowerPoint? I just mastered email.
1: 2001. Lots of new names showing up, impressive bunch. Rick Pucata, Billy Mallon, and Mel Herbert still whizzes at meetings. These guys are real stars. As are Knox Todd, Ed Newton, Judd Hollander, Sarah Stommer, Kathy Costolo, Arjun Chemegum, and Jamier Perrone. How are they so productive? Residents now are very competitive. Med students suck up on rotation. I get a good letter from the old fox. Nice homage, but I'm onto them. But they all know PowerPoint and can work a Palm. They think EM is a cool specialty. They will never understand what it took to get here. If my mother could only see me now. Now I really do have an office. My medical school advisor was right. You've got to be a bit nuts to do this ER thing. 2002. Just finished a bedside ultrasound course. Doubt of this procedure will ever be done to the ED, but somehow we got to pass radiology and even convince administration to buy the machines. The residents, of course, take it for granted. Malpractice, crowding countless meaningless meetings, lack of resources, money issues, no time for reading, research, or teaching. But at least the surgeons, internists, and anesthesiologists are off my back. They actually think we do fine, especially Saturday at 2 a.m.
0: The medical staff knows how hard this is. Getting less second-guessing and criticism, we actually tell them who to admit. They are probably happy to stay in bed and know their patients are being well-cared for now that we are actually able to teach their residents. Took a long time. The residents make us look good. Finally realized how hard it is to do full-time emergency medicine when you are older. My medical school advisor is still right. Gotta be a bit crazy to do this ER thing. But I was wrong. It did take off. 2022. Emergency medicine has changed dramatically since 2002. It's now one of the most popular residencies, and emergency physicians are involved in many activities outside of the -the run-of-the-mill ED patient
1: visit. I was wondering about cocaine. Crack became tremendously popular and devastating to many who used it. Opioids began to wreak havoc on the population in the 2000s, and the organizations that earlier made pain a vital sign and advocated for aggressive use of opioids now criticized physicians who prescribed them, even for severe pain. Heroin was displaced on the street by fentanyl around 2015, and now it's difficult to find pure heroin. Hospital labs finally started to test for fentanyl around 2020, but many variations are available to drug dealers. I was also wrong about HIV. It is omnipresent and something we see daily in the ED, but new drugs are now effective. Emergency physicians are now involved in a buprenorphine treatment for opioid addiction, diagnosing and treated excited delirium, and using ultrasound. Now, a basic ED technique.
0: EM education is booming, and the quality of conferences is astonishing, thanks to emergency physicians like Rick Bucata and Mel Herbert. The number of stellar physicians involved in EM education is overwhelming. To name just a few who have impressed me and make me feel totally inadequate, Christopher Carpenter, Eileen Claudius, Stephen Colucciello, David Glasser, Jessica Mason, Ken Milne, Rick Pescator, Jen Schoenberger, Michael Hyun, Maria Raven, Christopher Caldwell, Richard Shea, Peter Deblue. Michael Winters, Michael Callahan, Corey Slovis, Amal Matu, Todd Thompson, Stuart Swadron, and hundreds more.
1: The responses to that piece spawned a lot of touching sentiments. We like to point out a few. Uh, Martha, you just go ahead and kind of pick out the ones you want to do, and you can even direct me to read one here and there too.
0: Yeah, you know. <laughs> Before we do that, I just, I, I had to laugh and I still laugh every time I hear that piece and hear when I heard Jim talk about those things that that we couldn't imagine not doing today. Um, but a couple shout outs um, from some of Jim's dear friends. You know, the other thing is Jim hated to take credit for everything that he did. He was so modest. I mean, this whole piece was just naming people and I'm so sorry if I pronounced anybody's name incorrectly. Yeah, I, me so, too. I'm sorry <laughs> about that. I knew I blew at least one or two names. I mean, some, some people I, in this piece, I know better than others. Um, surprising. I, I was looking at some of the names as I was reading them and I'm like, gosh, it's been a long time since I've talked to them. But, um, Jim was always just so, uh, grateful for his peers and, and he always wanted to make sure that they stood out and that they, they got the credit that they deserved for what they did. He was never full of himself or, um, bragged about really anything he did. A um, couple of really nice things um, from some really great people. Uh, Dr. Andrew here says, um, how can I know what I think or what I can do until I've read what Jim Roberts says?
1: <laughs>
0: Steve Davidson. Um, Jim Roberts was my first senior resident when I was a first-year EM resident. Um, he was a fabulous role model. Um Bob McNamara, you frequently still make me feel inferior. My best to you. Um, a huge legend. And so many more. I'm I'm just, it's, I wish that we had time to read all of these. Um, but the article is posted on Emergency Medicine News in the June edition of the magazine, 2022. If you'd like to go read it. Um, we're going to take a brief pause, Mike before we read part two. And we are going to just put up our little pause button while we take a minute to regroup and come back with Jim's article in how to be a good EP.
1: I just want to know how many times he was asked to resign. That was like the funniest thing, like seven times. I feel like during the article, like I was asked to resign by this guy and this guy. I, I hope we told him to pound sand, honestly. Let's All just right, say, we'll say we glad he stuck break. with it. Yeah, <laughs> All right. No see kidding. you after the break. Welcome back, listener. The second part of our tribute to Dr. Jim Roberts is reading an article he published back in 2018 in Emergency Medicine News in his column in Focus. And it's titled, How to Be a Good EP. Um, You know, I think it applies just well to any or any sort of a emergency medicine clinician though. So um, here it goes, How to Be a Good EP from EM News, June 2018. And again, all links will be in our show notes. The website is twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number 2view.fireside.fm. You did it. You graduated from residency and became a real EP. Your first day of work looms and at the top of the agenda are unknotting your stomach and minimizing your palpitations. Odds are in the next month or so, you'll make your first big mistake. See a condition you never heard of before. Miss your first intubation in years in front of the medical students and order a BMW pending spouse approval. It's time to consider the magnitude of your plight. A real patient's life is squarely in your hands and you are alone in a real ED. It scared the hell out of me when I started and still does. I don't want to sound like your father or get too maudlin, corny, or whorlier than thou, but bear with me. I've been around a while. Any philosophy is much easier said than done, and this is the quintessential example. A lot of the following is what I strive for, but I've all too often fallen short. I screw up about three times a week. I'm just better at hiding it than you are. That talent comes with experience.
0: Even after 44 years in emergency medicine, I still struggle struggle with the ideal and philosophical versus the real world which is rife with serious limitations of resources and time, disappointing colleagues, unbelievably ignorant policymakers, and the unavoidable stresses of treating the sick, injured, frustrated, downtrodden, non-compliant, drugged, drunk, demanding, and overtly hostile. Keep in mind, however, that the 19-year-old with PVCs and the 43-year-old with obvious musculoskeletal chest pain both truly think they're going to die you will ever believe the bizarre milieu that we live in that is the ED. Most of society could not begin to fathom what you choose to do. Most ignore, disbelieve the unpleasantness and think it's a really cool job. Your significant other or parents will never understand your day-to-day life at the office. Why do you wear those scruffy scrubs? When will you get a real office like those other doctors? Your spouse will muse, and how hard can it really be chatting up loquacious nurses, schmoozing with all those two flirtatious medical students and noggling those much too attractive drug reps? The vomit on your shoes and the dried pus and blood on your scrubs should send a powerful and obvious message, but go figure.
1: Nothing is allowed to annoy or faze you. Not even an impossible bipolar crack addict, the child molester with AIDS, hellacious maggot-filled bed sores an acutely paralyzed teenager, or sudden infant death. You will be expected to be cool, calm, collected, compassionate, caring, and erudite, a sympathetic and interested listener to even the most annoying tales, a quintessential politician, and a role model at the same time. You are often called upon to perform medical interventions far above your comfort level and way above your level of training. Newsflash. There is no training to equip you totally for this job. If you are not scared or befuddled at least once a shift, you're not paying enough attention.
0: You're the anointed team leader and you're always expected to portray a positive attitude and professional demeanor and to set the tone for the entire staff. Any negative attitudes toward the hospital, paramedics, administrators, house staff, or especially the patients are quickly transmitted to and adopted by everyone. You are often treating the disadvantaged, poor, helpless, hopeless, and hapless in a war zone-like atmosphere. If you want a quiet ED with all the bells and whistles and a respectful, polite, sweet-smelling, cash-paying clientele, you pick the wrong hospital and probably the wrong profession. Should have been a plastic surgeon in Beverly Hills like your mother wanted.
1: The system is imperfect. Very imperfect. It always has been and always will be you will never have enough time, resources, personnel, equipment, or backup to make this job an easy one. Deal with that reality. If you want a thank you or even a lunch break, go sell shoes at Nordstrom's. What size? Which credit card? Now that's a cake job. On a good day, you have a cold pizza job. Above all, always, always, always be nice. Parents and family remember rarely what you said, but they always remember how you made them feel. There is only one time to make that first impression, a great opportunity to brand yourself as a hero and an angel of mercy. Be nice to the cleaning lady, security guard, cafeteria worker, and x-ray tech. Learn their names. They know yours.
0: Talk effusively to your patients, talk to them again, and always, always, always talk to the family. Look at them in the eye, not into the computer records. Sit down whenever possible. It says you are truly giving them a personal time and attention that you would want. That 280 pound demented nursing home patient with bed sores and a feeding tube is somebody's mother, and maybe she was the best third grade teacher Philadelphia ever had.
1: Many patients need a lesson in manners and Many colleagues need ones in compassion and basic common sense. Do not argue with patients over non-issues such as a few Percocet, an x-ray, a blood test, or even admission to the hospital if it's a close call. Resist the temptation always to be right. You won't be. Take the high road. Emergency physicians respond to a higher calling anyways.
0: Don't publicly criticize another physician or hospital. You will develop a firm grasp of hindsight but you are in a fishbowl every day and often talked about by name at surgery M M&M and conference. You may not know them, but the house staff knows you and you develop a lasting impression after their first encounter. Let that overpaid prima Madonna surgeon look like a jerk to all those who witness his barrage against you. A hardworking clinician making difficult real-time decisions on the job at 4.00 AM on Christmas day, hoping to get home in time to see his kids come down the stairs. Huber should be skewed at all times. You're simply not that good, that smart, or that accomplished to be inflexible or pious with a colleague or a patient. Arrogance gets you into trouble more than incompetence. As Clint Eastwood would say, a man's got to know his limitations.
1: Residents, nurse practitioners, and medical students can be fragile and insecure. You can give them confidence in their ability and career choice or shatter their self-esteem with a single, thoughtless encounter. House staff may seem totally in control on the outside, but they're often scared stiff. It's a fine art to learn how to critique without criticizing, to instruct without insulting, and to evaluate without emasculating. Teach them how to be a better doctor than you are. Students are expected to surpass their teachers, and if they do not, maybe you are not such a good teacher.
0: There's no shame in calling a consultant for a medical problem, a situation that is going poorly, or if you're in over your head. If your patient wasn't happy with your first plan or diagnosis, maybe it was flawed, so reconsider. Calling a consultant is a good way to share the liability.
1: A family can accept that a loved one will die, but when the time comes, it is a harsh reality, even if they are in hospice. The children will always remember their father's last ED encounter. Make that time as painless as possible for all concerned. Someday you will face that reality yourself, as a patient or with a relative. You can't change much at the end of life, but you can listen and usually do something to console them. A bed in hospice is waiting for many of us. Be especially nice to old people. You will be one in a heartbeat, trust me. That old guy from the nursing home can't remember what that 12-inch scar on his abdomen was from, but he might remember the jungles of Vietnam.
0: Be nice to the homeless. These patients don't need your attitude or comments about their lifestyle superimposed on their illnesses. Get them a meal tray and don't discharge them at 3 a.m. That sickle cell patient, alcoholic, or heroin addict would like to be drug-free if a better life were in it for them. Most physicians shy away from the mentally ill and it's difficult to be their relative or doctor. Usually they can't find a good friend, let alone a good physician. That's why they were always in the ED. They actually like you. Nobody wants to be psychotic. Just be thankful that your serotonin and dopamine levels are under the bell-shaped curve most of the time. If you won't help this segment of society, who will? Few even try.
1: If AIDS, mental illness, teenage pregnancy, or drug and alcohol addiction have not courted you or a member of your family, you are truly blessed. And dementia is likely the result of aging for most of us. When things are the darkest, remember what Mel Herbert told you, what you do really does matter. Medicine is a proud and noble profession, but it's actually just another service industry. Get used to hearing, when are you going to wait on me? I find patient rudeness, belligerence, and most importantly, entitled attitude the hardest to ignore. Get over it or it'll drive you nuts.
0: Being a doctor can be viewed as a privilege or an entitlement. Choose the former. You are well compensated for your time. No one gets paid what he is worth. And although you're not an NFL player, you do okay in the grand scheme of things and are usually spared the repeated concussions and bad knees. Please don't whine or complain. Nobody likes a high-maintenance employee, especially a highly paid professional who should be innovative and self-sufficient. If you can find a better job, don't tell me about it or bargain with it, just take it. But remember, that greener grass always requires more fertilizer and weeding.
1: The schedule is sacred. Don't miss a shift for two inches of snow. Show up on time. You know who you are. Here's a novel idea. Be that doctor who shows up 10 minutes early emergency medicine is not just a job it's a lifestyle but there is more to life than medicine you can never make up a missed championship soccer game anniversary birthday or chance to take your son or daughter fishing in a heartbeat your children will be on their own and will likely have trouble finding time for you remember that you might need a shift off someday so be ready to help a colleague with a similar request
0: We have the medical world by the tail, set schedule, no beepers, no calls for orders, no insurance forms to fill out, and no bills to collect. We get paid even when the hospital does not collect a cent. You don't have to fill the nursing schedule or even find a replacement for your vacation time. You clearly work hard for your paycheck, but any general practitioner or pediatrician would take your job and salary in a nanosecond until they work their first ED shift. Next time you think you're underpaid and overworked, consider the GP who works 70 hours a week, gets calls with lab results at 7.30 in the evening, eh, and makes, makes less than you do. And never discuss your salary with the hospitalist.
1: If you plan to give expert medical testimony, start a side business, or speak for a drug company, watch out for common pitfalls we all make. I have never turned in a chance to earn an honest buck, but it's a very seductive world out there, and your reputation can sink like a stone. Malpractice litigation is a slimy business. If you can get one rid of one bad doctor or get compensation for someone injured by indifference or incompetence, go for it. But it rarely works out like you planned. Don't sell your soul with absurd opinions to a doctor-hating jury. If you testify for money and there is so much of it to be readily made, your colleagues will recognize what you have become.
0: Finally, be careful with alcohol and your ready access to Vicodin and Percocet, addiction can ruin a lot of lives and it's easy to succumb. Many of those idealistic halcyon thoughts of being a doctor coupled with the blissful insouciance you've had as a medical student will sadly never ever materialize. Hopefully this will help you endure a bad shift, embrace your profession, and avoid many of the same mistakes I have made over the years. Perhaps not. Maybe selling shoes at Nordstrom isn't such a bad idea after all.
1: I can, I can see faces of patients that I think of just hearing, like just reading these words and like, there are certain people in hard times that like I see their faces and I hear the things they've said to me. Um, and, uh, I can think of one guy right now in particular and, um, Multiple times as the ED, um, he would come in and he has like legit organic medical issues, but he also has like mental, like behavioral health issues as well. Um, and neither of them are well controlled, but he would always come back with, you know, this, this complaint, multiple times a shift. And one time I was just like, you know, you, we've done this already twice. Like, why do you keep coming back? If you're, you're telling me, I just ask you, you said the chest pain, shortness of breath, the same as uh, every time you come in. So why'd you come back? And he looks at me and he goes, well, I talked to you and I feel better. <laughs> and I did, it just stopped me in my tracks. And I was like,
0: <laughs> that's what I said to you <laughs> last Saturday, Mike. Why are you just calling like, me again? Because just when like, I talk to you, I feel better.
1: <laughs> it just cut me to the heart. And, um, you know, that guy as, as whatever he has going on with him, um, that maybe was the clearest thing that he verbalized that maybe nobody else, none of other patients who are hard cases can verbalize to us that uh, I talk to you. And if we're both on our games, uh, I feel better. And um, if we can't offer our patients anything beyond that, at least we can do that for them, I suppose.
0: Yeah. So, um, Jim's career was very vast and certainly there were so many other wonderful, wonderful pieces that he wrote. Those were two of my favorites. I'm really glad that a lot of you could sit and listen to those with us. And as I mentioned, we will be having that memorial service October 2nd at the ASAP meeting. If you'd like to come and say hello, would love to see any and all of you, especially people that work directly with Jim over the years. And I think that's enough for this episode, Mike. I think Jim would say, you've already gone on too long.
1: <laughs> Remember these links, uh, to these episodes can, or the, the, the articles can be found at our website. Again, twoview.fireside.fm. Let's talk our Two View trivia question. Lots of great entries to this one here, um, but only one winner. Here is last month's question and answer. University Medical Center of Southern Nevada is the first hospital in the Las Vegas area. What was the first name of umc and when was it opened? the answer is umc's first name was clark county indigent hospital and it opened in 1931 lots of right answers this time but the winner who wrote and said please tell me i won (laughs) julio perez you won okay congratulations to you julio Mm -hmm. check your email about how to claim your prize okay
0: that's pretty great i'm glad when people get that excited (laughs) <laughs> All right. Our trivia question for the episode that we have today has to do with some exciting news about our upcoming, upcoming conference in Key West. As some of you know, Jim and I went to, have been going to Key West for 30 years fishing. I think um, finally after working so hard uh, in my job, I was like, you know what? I'm taking a month off. And Jim and I took a whole month down there last year and we had the best time. But we do have our course, our CCME course, our abstracts course, November 28th to December 2nd. It's the emergency medicine and acute care course. Um, This is a real hidden gem of a course, a fantastic course. It's completely redone every single year. Um, Perhaps one of my favorites and I think a lot of fun. We dig into um, a lot of the recent literature And the faculty that go there answer clinically relevant questions from emergency medicine to urgent care practice. They look at studies, papers, great review manual. You can take back with you just the good stuff. And everyone wants to come to Key West. I know there's some storms down there in Florida, but I called my friend this morning and said, how's it looking? And she said, everything was good down in the Keys. Now, Fort Myers, different story, but Key West is doing okay. So the hotel rooms, they they're almost all booked up. Okay. And there are 15 additional discounted rooms that we were just able to get our hands on. They're going fast. So remember November 28th to December 2nd, you know, the deal, you'll have to request offer your shift, you know, talk to your scheduler, go to www.ccme.org to sign up for this amazing course at the best location.
1: Yeah, as we record this, uh, Key West, uh, the rest of Florida are just kind of recovering from Hurricane Ian, so our hearts go out to you if you or a loved one are in Florida. Good luck. Stay safe. Here is our trivia question. Key West is known for being the home of a famous American author in the 1930s who owned special animals, and the descendants of those animals still live on the property to this day. Who is the author, and what is special about these animals? Email us your two-part answer to our two-view trivia question or, you know, any feedback or comments from this or any episode to twoviewcast at gmail.com. That's the number twoviewcast at gmail.com.
0: Also in December, it's our final session of the original Emergency Medicine Bootcamp this year, December 13th through the 16th in Las Vegas for the main course, the pre-course workshops. um, They're 11th through 12th for pharmacology, Ultrasound and procedures. Treat yourself, treat your patients, and have a nice Christmas gift with us in Las Vegas. I will be there, Mike. I will.
1: I will be there too. I can't wait. More information on the original and adverse emergency medicine boot camps, the emergency medicine and acute care course, or any of our courses are available at the Center for Medical Education website. That's www.ccme.org. Again, it's www.ccme.org. Thank you for listening to this. Really special episode of the two of you. I hope that you, however long or short your career in emergency medicine has been, were able to kind of look back a little bit and um, and think about how special, how special we have it as emergency clinicians and maybe even look forward a little bit too to see um, kind of what to do now. How shall now we live, you know, as the saying goes. I totally bungled that, but you get the idea. Anyways, you can subscribe and rate us on Apple, iTunes, Podcast, Google Podcast, and Spotify. Just put a rating in there, okay? Make it five stars. If you can't go as a five-star review, like just email us and tell us why, what you want us to do better here. Search for two-view emergency on your podcatchers. That's the number two-view emergency. and It'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some two-view goodness like you are today. If you like YouTube and want to see the video blog instead, search for Center for Medical Education and you can catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's toview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
0: Thank you again for tuning in, friends at EM. Share this podcast with a friend, share your thoughts via email, and thanks for sharing your time with us here at The Two View. Have a good day and have a great shift.